You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. I want you all to go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Verse 22, we've been in a series, Questions Jesus Asked, and today we're going to look at one of these questions. And we're also going to read about a few robberies. And I admit that most robberies are wrong. Kids don't rob banks, but some of them uh, aren't all bad. Some robberies aren't, and we're going to look at some of the good ones today. But, you know, there's good thieves and bad thieves. And there's uh, one bad thief I'd like to tell you about. His name is bank robber Lawrence John Ripple. I think y'all get a kick out of this this morning. Uh, A news report that was updated June 15, 2017, explained that this 70-year-old man, L.J. Ripple, went to a Kansas City bank called the Bank of Labor at 756 Minnesota Avenue, a block from police headquarters, uh, in September of 2016, I believe. And he, he gave a note to a teller that he had a gun and he was demanding money. And after the teller gave him all the cash, Ripple waited for the police to show up. That's because, as court records indicate, Ripple wrote the robbery note in front of his wife. (laughs) He told her he'd rather be in jail than at home with her. (laughs) True story, true story. He was trying to escape his wife. I'm sorry, ladies, it's just, uh, it's the truth. What do you want me to do? All right. So, he, of course, he pled guilty, even though he pled guilty, you know, his attorney and his federal prosecutor asked the U.S. District uh, Court judge for leniency. And here's the ironic part. The U.S. District Court judge sentenced Ripple to three years of supervised probation, 50 hours of community service, and get this. Oh, y'all know what's coming. Six months of home confinement. Right? Hey, robberies don't always go as planned you know, even if you want to get caught, right? And today we're going to witness a robbery, what Jesus calls literally a plundering. Oh, and it's a good one, all right? So I'm not going to make you stand up for this today, but I want you to read this with me today. Matthew 12, verses 22 to 32. These are 10 wonderful. These are some good verses right here. Okay. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Verse 23. And all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. Verse 28. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how, and here's the question today, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. I want to ask Miss Lynn to come and ask God's blessings today. Lynn, again, is so 
such a blessing to have you here. It's a delight to be with you all. Father, it's all about you. You deserve the honor and the glory and the praise, and it's been a delight to praise and the worship songs this morning. And Lord, as we continue in this time of worship, Lord, I don't know what these people need today. Some have come in probably with great heartaches and discouragement, depression maybe, needing forgiveness, needing to forgive. I don't know, but you do. You know the hearts and the needs of everyone in this room. And I love them, but you love them even more. And so I ask you to come in your great might and power. The word's already anointed. It's not going to return void. I ask you to anoint Went as he speaks, that your Holy Spirit might speak to every heart. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive that we'll not just sit in here for an hour and go out the same. And so we just, we just ask you to impart things for us today that only you can do. Only you can do, but Lord, you can do anything. Nothing is impossible to you. So we love you, we bless you, we thank you. We thank you for your presence. May your spirit fall in great power today and change hearts and lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen, amen. Well, uh, we don't let uh, women preach in our church, but what I'm gonna do next week is let her pray for 30 minutes and I'm gonna... <laughs> I'm going to preach for three. <laughs> we, we could really call this sermon uh, the, the greatest thief in the universe. Uh, and, and there's three main parts to this story. And I'm going to go ahead and give them to you for you note takers. There's a freeing miracle, a fierce accusation, and a pretty frightening reply. Right In each of these three parts, there's a robbery that takes place, and we'll talk about that at the end of the point. So, first is a freeing miracle. Matthew 12, 22, that then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And in this miracle, we first see that there's an association. There's an association of sickness to Satan, Right? I'm not being over-spiritual to say this. It's clear from the text and all throughout Scripture. Scripture demonstrates that demon possession manifests itself in many ways, but one of the ways seems, that seems common is through physical sickness or impairment. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't use doctors to bring our healing. I'm not against blood transfusions. I'm not uh, one of those guys. But there are physical ailments today that are the result of demonic activity. Right? It's nothing to be scared about. But it is real. That's why Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And again, it's not scary. It's just informative. You're, we're in a war. And it's not a war that you can track with some earthly radar system. Right? But it is a war that's already been won. Amen? <laughs> Which is why 1 John 4, 4 says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So there's an association with the devil and the problems that this particular man was suffering from. All right? Second, there's an, a, an appreciation. It's an assumed appreciation of this man to Jesus. When uh, Matthew 12, 23 says, and all the people were amazed, I believe that included the guy who was healed. Now, it's obviously not the focus of the story, but I believe it's assumed, right? It was a healing trifecta. What do they call it in sports, soccer, and other places where you get three goals? They call it a 
hat trick. That's right. So Jesus performs a heavenly hat trick. No more demon possession. No more blindness. No longer mute. I mean, that's, that's flexing his heavenly muscles, right? He, he, he could control himself. He could see and he could speak. And in my sanctified imagination, I believe the first words he spoke were praises to God who healed him. I hope so. So there's an association. There's an appreciation. And unfortunately, third, there's a hesitation by the crowd toward Jesus. And this really is a, this, a sad part of the story because there's three groups in here. There's the healed guy. There's the Pharisees, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But then there's these, what I call in-between Christians, right? Listen to what they say in Matthew 12, 23. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? They were amazed, but they were skeptical. What we call in the South, wishy-washy, right? What James 1, verse 5 speaks against if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And let him but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now look, at face value, the question, can this be the son of David? sounds hopeful. It sounds like, hey man, this might be Jesus, right? After all, the title, the son of David, was a reference to the promised Messiah who was from the lineage of David. This is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. It's a record of this promised Messiah. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, meaning his lineage, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so there's multiple references throughout the Old Testament of this coming Messiah. Jesus is also referred to this way as the son of David multiple times in the book of Matthew, all the way from uh, Matthew 12, all the way through Matthew 22:42. right? Isaiah even says uh, of this Messiah, this coming Messiah, that he brings healing to the deaf and blind. So it's not a shocker. Isaiah 29, verse 18. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, <laughs> and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. So how are they hesitating when they ask the question, can this be the son of David? What, how is that contained hesitation? Well, first, I believe they doubted Jesus' methods. Right? Jesus wasn't the conquering Messiah everyone thought he was going to be. Right? I believe that all those folks had heard the stories of David and his mighty men, right? You know, David slain his 10,000s, you know, his men, remember those stories of those great men that stood their ground and slew 300 other soldiers, they killed the enemy. And I believe they thought about that when they thought about whoever this new Messiah would be. The son of David surely is stronger than David and his mighty men. David took out Goliath. So, I mean, surely this guy is bigger and badder than David, right? But Jesus was a different kind of liberator. He wasn't the kind ever all of us expected him to be. He, he came healing. He wasn't killing. He was raising the dead. <laughs> he came to conquer by surrendering. This couldn't possibly be the guy. But man, those, those miracles, I mean, that's unexplainable, Right? They didn't realize Jesus came to conquer by his surrendered body and his sinless blood, not by a sharpened blade. There was hesitation because of Jesus' methods. Second, they were directed 
by Pharisee propaganda. The popular majority did not believe in Jesus. All right, still the same. We talk about it, wide gate, you know, narrow road. <laughs> wide is the what road leads to destruction, narrow is the way. And as much as I hate to admit it, the people who control anti-Jesus propaganda even today carry a great deal of influence. Right? Y'all remember we recently talked about the Pharisees, how they controlled the scribes uh, who interpreted the scriptures in the synagogues, right? To, to mean whatever they wanted it to mean, right? But if the God ever showed up, who inspired the Bible <laughs> and who fulfilled the prophecies in the Bible about himself, if Jesus interpreted the scripture correctly and nullified all their little man-made additions, where, where would that leave them? <laughs> Without a job, right? Without a hierarchy. So all through the gospels, we read these attempts by the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious elite, all right, to shut Jesus down, to twist his words, to trap him, and of course, eventually kill him. Right, which they thought they succeeded in. Right? So propaganda influenced the crowd's hesitation. Number three, their hesitations were demonstrated by Matthew's own wording. Right? And this seems to be most, the most clear indication of their hesitation. According to scholars, the question, can this be the son of David, is introduced by a word, I think the word is meti, which formally suggests the answer, no. I mean, it'd be like a wife saying to her husband, you're not going... You know, you're not going out, are you? You're not going to wear that, are you? It's, it's, it, the way the question is posed is rhetorical, right? It's like the answer's no. And that's the way they're, they're, they're saying, that they're asking this question. And it could fairly be translated, uh, according to scholars, as this man isn't the son of David, is he? You know? So we have a freeing miracle as the backdrop of Jesus's definition of blasphemy. That's gonna be important. You've got a miracle in the same passage as blasphemy. You've got a miracle, a trifecta miracle <laughs> of all things in the same passage as an unforgivable sin. And it's going to, they're gonna be tied together in just a minute, right? It's against the backdrop of an undeniable miracle that they hesitate. And so just like that, in just two verses, verses 22 and 23, we have three robberies. Satan's robbed of his ability to continue persecuting this particular healed man. The healed man was robbed of his misery and demonic activity. That's a good robbery. The crowd was, has robbed themselves, really, of confidence and stability, like James 1 says, because they've hesitated because of their own hesitation, either by the propaganda or their own doubt. So we see first a freeing miracle, but second, we see a fierce accusation. You know what they say, if you can't beat them, accuse them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, right? And in Matthew 12, 24 says, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, all right, so I just want to break this down a little bit to explain it. First, we have the Pharisees' envious motive, right? Jesus had already denounced the Pharisees as hypocritical, self-righteous leaders, and he's trampled all over all their little man-made systems and traditions, so they were ticked about that. Add to that that all these multitudes of people were turning to follow Jesus, and it's easy to see why they just couldn't handle the fact that Jesus really was the, pro the prophesied Messiah, right? So their, their envious motive threw them into panic, right? 
All legitimate arguments were off the table now. This man was so visibly disabled and instantly and completely healed that all the people were amazed. But that didn't mean the Pharisees were going to jump over to Team Jesus right away, right? Unless we think that it's only Christians uh, who notice Pharisee persecution. Because some people could say, well, yeah, Christians are obviously looking out for themselves and you know, defending themselves. Christians aren't the only ones that noticed persecution. I mean, you could look in history and see this. You can look in the Bible and see this in Matthew 27, verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Notorious. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas, or Jesus who is called Christ? And hear this, verse 18, Matthew 27. For he knew, the governor knew, that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Friend, that is the direct opposite of the Christ-like humility that John the Baptist in, illustrated and demonstrated in John chapter 3, verse 26. You know this passage. You will once I read it. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, referring to Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptized baptizing and all are going to him, meaning these followers that, that you had baptized are going to him. John answered, verse, 27, uh, verse 29, the one who has the bride, the church, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, John the Baptist is saying, that's me, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You coming to me to try to start a fight to make me envious of Jesus? You've lost your mind, disciple. I am here to decrease, and he's here to increase. And it's my joy to see it happen. I mean, you know, in one sense, we're all just wedding planners <laughs> for the eternal wedding, aren't we? Because the church is the bride of Christ. But not for the Pharisees, right? Jesus forced the Pharisees to make their hidden and manipulative little bias public for all to hear and see. And it's quite interesting to me that it happened right after he had caused a man to literally hear and speak. <laughs> your, your motives are about to be heard and spoken, right? And commentators think that this guy was also probably deaf as well since those those ailments kind of went hand in hand. Envy is a motive that brings out the worst in us, isn't it? We need to be careful. And it certainly did in this story. Second, we see their private complaints. It seems uh, that the Pharisees were obviously standing at a distance when Jesus did this healing because they're talking among themselves. And Jesus says, knowing, it says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them. So they were standing away. I think their thoughts were out loud because they were influencing the crowds, but they were doing it at a distance, right? Now, the Pharisees had already slandered Christ publicly uh, in the same chapter. If you go back to uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 2, and again in verse 10, they are publicly slandering Jesus. But this time, they needed a little more momentum, right? They needed a plan. And so they built this momentum of confusion by hiding their complaints. Where did they hide them? They hid them in the hearts of others. And I just want to pause here just for a minute, little side sermon. Church, you need to be careful with your negative words around others, and those kids are others. On this cruise this week, I was at a bar getting a drink, and this kid came up, this, and I'm talking little kid, eight, nine years old, 
And she came up, you know, she had the little card, the drink card to get a soda or whatever from the bar, you know. And so she comes up beside me. I was actually talking to an Indian man who was behind the counter. And this other woman was waiting on this girl. And that little girl came up and talked to that woman like she was a dog. And she slapped her little card down and she already had a drink that the woman had just given her. But she had her friends with her and was trying to buy all of them a drink, even though she had only one card. And so the sweet lady behind the counter was like, I'm sorry, I, I can't serve you. You can only have one, you know, I can't serve your friends on your card. And she, that little girl smarted off to that woman. Like, I mean, like worse than you would treat a dog. S grabbed her card off the counter, stormed off, said, well, I'll just be back in five minutes. And the woman said, okay. And I couldn't help but think, where did she learn that? And we got to be careful, parents. This, I know this is a little side sermon, but I just threw it in for free. All right? You're welcome. <laughs> Wish it applied, you know. Be careful with your words, right? But like we mentioned earlier, the Pharisees were poisoning the hearts and minds of the people against Jesus by answering their questions about Christ in private with a, like an absolute no. So before they even got to the crowd, they're over there, no, he's not, no, he's not. And they're spreading these lies. Beware the private negative influence of others. Envious motives, private complaints, and third, we see their deadly comparison. Now this is where it kind of gets dark for me. Matthew 12, 24, but the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Now, scholars say Beelzebul was as Beelzebub, right? Beelzebub is mentioned in the Old Testament, same different spelling. Second Kings 1 verse 2, there was this wicked guy named Ahaziah who fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and he lay sick, so he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Beelzebub, this is a god, an idol, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. So go consult an idol in some demonic pagan temple. But the angel of the Lord, so that's one story, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the Tishbite, arise, go up to the meeting of the king of Samaria and say to him. So there's no other way that Elijah would have known that guy was going to the temple to get consultant for the king. But Elijah knew because God told him to do it, so he intercepts him on the way. And he says to him, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, right? He's saying, where are you going? We got a God right here of Israel who has saved us. Who are you going to consult with? And matter of fact, because of that, the story's insane. The, the Ahaziah sent 50 people out. To, to get that answer from him because he was ticked at what Elijah, because Elijah said, hey, you're going to die because your, your heart's blasphemous against God. So he goes, he sends 50 people to go hunting down Elijah. And God called, and, and Elijah says, Who, if I'm a man of God, burn them jokers. And he did. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Sent another 50 out consumed them too. The third group came and that dude was smart enough to fall on his face before Elijah was like, don't do it. It's a crazy story. I'll have to preach on it one time. Second Kings 1, you know, don't read it before you go to bed. All right? <laughs> but the point is, that it, that's where we see the word Beelzebub, right? 
and its defiance of Christ. And, and so why are these words different? Why, why, are, why is it Beelzebub in the Old Testament, Beelzebul in the New Testament? Well, uh, some people believe it's a play on words because Zebul resembles Zebel, which means dung. So the same hypocritical Pharisees who hated the Baal of Ekron, oh, we have nothing to do with the Baal of Ekron, right? They could have, as scholars say, made a slight change in pronunciation to heap scorn upon Jesus by conveying the thought that he was nothing but a Lord of dung. And honestly, either way you see it, in the New Testament, it is crystal clear that Beelzebul is the prince of the demons, meaning Satan himself. They were calling Jesus the devil in the flesh instead of God in the flesh. Satan incarnate instead of God incarnate. They didn't just think the devil was influencing Jesus. They thought Jesus was possessed by him. They said, in effect, you're the antithesis of the son of David. You're the servant of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. As one theologian put it, they had only one option because Jesus' power was indisputably supernatural because the only two sources of supernatural power are God and Satan. And because they refused to recognize Jesus as being from God, they were forced to conclude that he was an agent of Satan. He must serve the ruler of the demons for whom Beelzebul or Beelzebub was a popular title derived from the name of an ancient Canaanite deity. So again, in just two verses... Uh, Matthew 12, 24 and 25, we see another robbery. The Pharisees were robbed of their glorious position of self, selfish misinterpretation of the Bible through the undeniable power and miracles of Christ. And they just couldn't take it. A freeing miracle, a fierce accusation, and finally a frightening reply from Jesus to the Pharisees. As one scholar put it, they would not confront him directly with their accusation, but he confronted them with its absurdity, its prejudice, and its rebelliousness. So, in reply to these accusations, this big accusation that Beelzebub empowers him to cast out demons, Jesus clarifies at least four things, right? First, your accusation makes no sense. Matthew 12, 26. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then uh, will his kingdom stand, right? Why would Satan send out demons to take control of mankind only to give mankind the weapons to overpower the demons? That makes no sense at all. That's just foolishness, right? A house divided against itself won't win. Second, your accusation is hypocritical. Matthew 12, 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, well, how do your sons do it? You know, they believe that, that and by the way, sons just means like you're either your offspring or your disciples, all right? So, uh, I think it was MacArthur who said, certain followers or sons of the Pharisees cast out demons, and the Jewish historian Josephus reports that they used many strange, exotic incantations and cultic formulas in their rites. So, this might have been a little slight hand by Jesus to say, no, your, your men are the ones that cast it out. Your men, your men make it look like they cast out the demons to impress everybody, but those demons don't really go anywhere. And I actually have seen this firsthand in India where people have prayed over 
to cast out a demon, but the demon really doesn't leave. It just submits deceitfully. So Jesus is saying, if you question the power I have to do it, then what power do your sons have? Third, your accusation is an attempt to mask the real issue. This is it. We see this all over our world right now. Masking, hiding behind other agendas. Matthew 12, 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how, and here's our question, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? <laughs> then indeed he may plunder his house. And then he's got this random verse thrown in here. Oh, and whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. Kind of out of place. Feels that way. Right? And this is, this is where this, this question comes into play. How do you rob a strong man? And I don't know that Jesus wasn't, again, using, countering their play on words with another play on words, because Beelzebul could mean master of the house. So it's an insult that the master of all would be called master of the house, right? And so it's like Jesus is saying, okay then, if this is Satan's house, and Satan's obviously powerful enough to oppress, possess, and sicken this healed man, then you tell me how I robbed him. <laughs> Fact is, you know how I robbed him. <laughs> you know him. You know, you know the truth about this because I bound him up because I'm stronger than him. <laughs> and my superiority is the real issue. That's the issue that you're masking. You don't believe in my deity. You don't believe that I'm God. And you can't handle that. That's the issue. Uh, it was in, I read this funny story uh, two weeks ago in research about this. In 1995, there, were, there was a large middle-aged man who robbed two Pittsburgh banks uh, in broad daylight. And he, the crazy thing is he didn't wear a mask. He didn't, he didn't use any kind of disguise. He just walked in, even smiled at the surveillance cameras before walking out of each of these banks. Have y'all heard this story? It's a crazy story. Later that night, of course, the police showed up. And, he, and, and MacArthur Wheeler was a little shocked that they showed up, right? And when they showed in the surveillance footage, and he could see his self parading around he was kind of in disbelief and he mumbled in under his breath he says but I wore the juice I wore the juice apparently maybe it was a high school project I don't know he thought lemon juice disguised him because lemon juice he thought by rubbing it all over his skin would make him invisible to the video camera since lemon juice is used as invisible ink, you know, when your teacher baked it, you know, you put lemon juice on and get it hot. So as long as he didn't come near a heat source, he should have been completely invisible. Police concluded that Wheeler was not crazy or on drugs, just incredibly mistaken. And here's the thing. This whole saga was caught the eye of the psychologist David Dunning at Cornell University who enlisted his graduate student, Justin Kruger, to see what this was all about. So they researched Wheeler, right? So they, they researched him and they reasoned that while almost everyone holds favorable views of their abilities in various social and intellectual uh, domains, some people mistakenly assess their abilities as being much higher than they actually are. This illusion of confidence is now called, and this is hilarious to me, the Dunning-Kruger effect. 
and describes the cognitive bias to inflate self-assessment. So the two dudes who thought they came up with the grand idea of self-assessment should have called it the Wheeler complex because he's the one that they studied, but they called it their own complex. Isn't that funny that they're naming this complex after a complex they have and don't know it? Anyway, I just found that funny. So that's why Jesus comes right out with this weird verse. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. It just seems so random. He's saying, if you don't know that, I, that I'm on God's side and that by the power of God I do these things, it's only because you're against him. You're against me. Your accusations mask the real issue that you aren't with me because you're shepherds that scatter the flock of God instead of bringing them into the protection of the truth of God's word. You realize that churches and small groups and families that, that hover close to the words of God, are, they're protected by truth. Truth is like a barrier to all things that are lies. And instead of, instead of giving their people the truth, these Pharisees were scattering. You're, he says, you're a scatterer. You're not with me. And that's the real issue. You could care less why I cast out these demons. You know that I did it because I'm more powerful. And you don't want to believe. Your accusations make no sense. They're hypocritical. They mask the real issue. And fourth, your accusation is unforgivable. Matthew 12, 31, therefore I tell you every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And there's been a lot of misunderstanding about this unpardonable sin, this unforgivable sin or what we call the sin of blasphemy, all right? And in one respect, all sin is blasphemous. Right? Because it's disobedience against a loving and holy God. Leviticus 24, 16, just to kind of highlight this intensity, says, whomever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. So there's, uh, there's people who think, well, if I just don't say God's name in vain, I'll never be in danger of blasphemy. That's not true. Blasphemy is not about a cuss word. <laughs> it's about a heart issue. Right? And even the blasphemy of willing Willingly, knowingly rejecting the Lord or mocking the Lord can be forgiven if we confess it, repent and believe. Remember, Peter denied, called down curses on himself in denial of Jesus, and he was forgiven. Paul's a perfect example of this when he says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and unbelief forgive them lord they know not what they do forgive me lord i don't know what i was doing and i know i know if you're a believer in here you've said that to god i, I god i i don't know what i was thinking I, it was just a moment it was just foolish i can't believe i said that i can't believe i did that i can't believe i thought that Paul says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. If you've got faith, that was a gift from God to you. But there's one exception to this. And that is blasphemy against the Spirit. And just to kind of help you understand what that is, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is intentional, purpose-driven refusal of faith. 
This is someone who has seen all the flat facts laid out in the courtroom of heaven, right? They, they have had enough, as, as Romans 1 says, they've had enough to respond to. Maybe even more than just the general revelation of God's creation. They've had specific knowledge. They felt the Holy Spirit drawing. They felt conviction. They've been influenced by other believers. And, and they could be, they're in a place where they could be led to genuine faith in Christ, but they refuse it. They reject it. This is a heart that sees the truth, knows the truth, but rejects the deity of Christ. Whatever the blasphemy of the spirit is, it contains a final refusal. If you want to know a simple two-word definition of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, if you want to know a simple two-word definition of the unpardonable, unforgivable sin, it is a final refusal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says, verse 32, it will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. You ain't getting a second chance. Friend, listen. When the Holy Spirit has made himself known to you, known to us, and I know that he has, and he is right now, just as Miss Lynn prayed, the promise of God's scripture in Isaiah 55, 11 says his word won't return void. If you're confronted with the miracle of Jesus, but refuse the implications of those truths, you're in danger of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. In his commentary on Matthew, a commentator named Hendrickson said, their sin is unpardonable because they are unwilling to tread the path that leads to pardon. For a thief, an adulterer, and a murderer, there is hope. The message of the gospel may cause him to cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. But when a man has become hardened so that he has made up his mind not to pay attention to the Holy Spirit, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. Friend, listen, let me just leave you with this. The last robbery has taken place. And it is on the cross when Jesus robbed death. He robbed my punishment and he robbed my death. This old body will die, but I ain't dying. Satan like make you think we're annihilationists. We're just going to go on and never exist. No, friend, you're going somewhere. Your soul's going somewhere. It's just a determination of whether it's going to go to heaven or hell. Jesus stole death from Satan and Satan never, never even knew it was coming. So my plea to you this morning is to get off the road to perdition and get on the road to pardon. If you're worried about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, trust Christ and you'll know that you are incapable of it. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're incapable of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because you've been sealed, like we sang about, sealed in the redemption of Jesus' blood. Right? Just like a father, you may not like your biological father, but he's your biological father. DNA, DNA, right? But we got a perfect heavenly father. And just like your earthly father is by blood, your heavenly father's by blood, it's the blood of the cross, and you can't reverse that. You're either saved or you're not. They went out from us because they were never among us. So if you reject Christ later in your life, and we look puzzled, how can, we were talking, I was talking with a couple of people this morning, how can some of these great saints of God turn their faith? Because they were never truly of us. They just masked it, maybe under the guise of Satan so that they could try to bring the Lord down. But you can't bring him down because the strong man got locked up when Jesus died on the cross. Amen. People ask me sometime, you know, Satan's so smart. No, he's got limited knowledge. 
only God's omniscient. Only God's all-knowing. <laughs> Satan only knows the information that, that God allows to push through that straw to him. And all, all the time, he's just a vessel for God to bring about his purposes in the world. And you need to know that. You have victory over the devil. And you have it by faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You, you don't want to commit the unpardonable sin? Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Would you stand? Father God, we love your word. We eat it like a T-bone steak. It goes down, it settles in our souls, and we love it. And we pray that you would allow it to nourish our bodies and our minds to see clearly our own sin, our own uh, scary moments where we push the envelope of blasphemy in our own hearts. And we treat you with contempt even as Christians. And my prayer today, Lord, is that not one person would walk out of here and be guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And to do that, they, they, they have heard the gospel. I believe everyone in here has the mental capacity to consider the implications of what we've heard today. Consider these things. Consider history. Consider the Holy Spirit. Consider the guilt I have of my own sin. And call on the name of the Lord. I pray you do that now. It's not complicated. It's just crying out to God and say, saying, help me. Just like those soldiers who were sent to Elijah, they said, don't burn us up. <laughs> and Lord, we fall at your feet and we say, don't burn us up. We trust you. We believe. We believe in the miracles of the Old Testament and the New. We believe you're the God of all gods, the King of all kings. And we believe you're returning one day to get those who have called on the name of the Lord. And I call on your name now. I don't know all there is to know about you, but what I do know, I'm trusting. If you do that, if you call on the name of the Lord, confess your sins to him, he will forgive you and he will save you forever. And you will not have to sleep in the same bed tonight with your fleshly guilt. It'll be gone, stolen by God on the cross through your faith that he gave you. Lord, I pray if there's others that need to join the church today and, and get involved and serve in some capacity in this church, you begin to show them their gifts and let them use those spiritual gifts in the local church, the bride of Christ. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. This has been Sermon Audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.